This podcast is supported by Americans for Medical Progress through the Michael D. Hare Fellowship, awarded annually to support projects that inform and educate the public about the critical role of animal research in furthering medical progress. The fellowship honors the late Dr. Michael Hare, a renowned board-certified laboratory animal veterinarian who dedicated his career to scientific and medical advancements and who was deeply committed to animal welfare and advocacy. In this fifth episode of Lab Rat Chat, Danielle and I talked with a truly amazing guest, Dr. Rick Bourne, who is not only a scientist, he also has a medical degree, he works at Harvard, and he's also a member of an organization that is open and transparent about the use of animals in research called the Society for Neuroscience. Dr. Bourne tells us about some of the many amazing discoveries that have come from the use of animals in research, while also discussing some of his own very own interesting and eye-opening research. Sit back and relax and enjoy this fifth episode of Lab Rat Chat. Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of Lab Rat Chat. It's hard to believe we're already on our fifth episode, but I just want to briefly mention that when I applied for this fellowship that's supporting this podcast, we only really intended to do a total of five episodes. So if you all are enjoying this show, would like for us to keep it going, you should definitely go rate, review, comment, give us some feedback that you want to hear more. I think we have a lot more to talk about. I'm enjoying doing this. I'm pretty sure, Danielle, you're enjoying doing this as well. I am. So that's good. And we'll just kind of, we'd like to keep this going. So... Like I said, get out there and leave some feedback for us and encourage us and leave topics that you want us to talk about so we can talk about those. And then we can bring on more guests, which segues nicely into today's guest, who is Dr. Rick Bourne. He's a researcher and a member of an organization called the Society for Neuroscience. And today he will be telling us a little bit about Society for Neuroscience or SFN and some of his own research as well. So welcome to the show, Dr. Bourne. Thanks very much. It's great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. So if you could, we usually just start out with the guests telling the listeners a little bit about your background, you know, what made you interested in science, medicine, research, and a little bit about your journey to get where you are today. Absolutely. Well, I I grew up in what I call the Deep North, which is the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a very small town. Um, But I was always interested in math and science and gravitated towards biology. Fast forward to 1983 when I came out to Boston to attend medical school. And when I arrived in Boston, I knew for absolute 100% certain that I was going to become an orthopedic surgeon. But as time went by, I became more and more interested in the nervous system. And then as I did my clinical rotations uh, in neurology, neurosurgery, psychiatry, what really was impressed upon me as a young, impressionable medical student was how little we understood about how the human brain worked and therefore how little we could do to treat the disorders of the nervous system. And so fortunately, I was at a a place like Harvard Medical School where I had ample access to amazing research labs. And so I took a year off after my third year of medical school, uh, worked in the Department of Neurobiology at the medical school. And that's when I had these sort of experiences where the scales fell from my eyes. And I realized that what I really wanted to do was basic research on the nervous system. It was really during my time in the lab of David Hubel and Margaret Livingstone, where I discovered doing neurophysiology in the visual system that I kind of felt like I had discovered my calling. And after that, it was sort of graduating from medical school, doing two postdoctoral fellowships to sort of consolidate and improve my experimental skills, and then going into uh, basic research as an assistant professor, as it turned out, back at Harvard Medical School. That's awesome background. 
Could you also elaborate a little bit on Society for Neuroscience? Absolutely. So the Society for Neuroscience is the largest society for centered around the study of the nervous system in the world. I think the last I saw, we had something like 35,000 plus members in over 95 countries. And really what it is, is an umbrella organization that does many different things to promote uh, research and public health related to the nervous system. So for example, one of their missions is to advance scientific exchange uh, through things like an annual meeting and through journals like the Journal for Neuroscience. They support the neuroscience community through grants and awards and fellowships, as well as through various committees that are designed to support specific aspects of neuroscience research. And one of the those committees is the Committee on Animals and Research, uh, which is there to promote the responsible, humane use of animals in research. And um, as part of that, you know, we have many different aspects to what our committee does, but one of them is to support researchers who might come under attack from animal rights organizations. Uh, but we also have an outreach where aspect where we're trying to educate the community on the facts regarding the necessity for responsible animal research in the neurosciences. Um, and so in that sense, we're also an advocate for the field and for animal research in general. And then finally, the society is there to educate and engage the public in these important you know, discoveries and support the research in neuroscience. So, for example, there's a, a brain awareness week that the society sponsors to go into schools all the way from you know, grade schools on up to promote the knowledge about the brain. Yeah, that's really great. And you touched on the part about the committee on helping organizations that have gone under attack from animal activists. And we'll definitely I'm going to have to ask you about that later in the show. But from what I've seen from Society for Neuroscience's website, and to be honest, I didn't know a whole lot about the organization before I started researching a little bit when I was applying for this fellowship to do this podcast. Well, one thing that's very obvious when you go to the website is you guys are very open and transparent about the use of animals in research. And so is that something that the organization decided, you know, hey, we need to be open about this and transparent and found it imperative to just publicly promote responsible animal research? Because like, you know, so many organizations take the opposite approach and try to keep it a secret and hide it, which is the opposite of what we need to be doing. So I was just wondering kind of just the take on that and why the organization decided to be so open with it, if you can even answer that. That's a very interesting question. So I can definitely assert that it's part of the culture at the Society for Neuroscience and certainly on our committee. I don't know at what level or when it was actually decided to be more open as opposed to being secretive. Um, but I think it's something, what, what I've seen is that it's something that has evolved in the field, not just in neuroscience, but in other fields of biomedical research that rely on animals to do experiments. And I think part of it is, a big part of it, has been some legislation, you know, that was passed. So, for example, the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, which was, I think, passed by Congress in 2006 through with the support of uh, organizations like the National Association for Biomedical Research um, that does so much to support and protect researchers. And what this law did is it kind of upped the penalties, the consequences for people, for groups who were, would make personal attacks on researchers or animal research enterprises. And I think when researchers were afraid, and, and I know, you know friends and colleagues of mine uh, who were personally attacked by animal rights organizations, I myself, uh, when I first started research, this would have been back in 95 or 96, 
in my own lab, that is, before I received an envelope with a razor blade in it uh, and a threat letter from a, a group called, I think they called themselves the Justice League or something. They were based in Great Britain. And nothing bad ever came of it. But of course, at the time, my daughter had just been born and you know, I was a new father and a new assistant professor. And I wasn't afraid for myself. But you know, as soon as you start getting these threats, you start thinking about your family. And so I think what happened is as a result of uh, legislation like the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act, these overt attacks, you know, personal attacks where, where one's family or one's person was you felt in danger, there was a calming effect on that. And I think that then made it easier for researchers like myself to come out and discuss what we do when we didn't feel like we, had to, we were taking our lives in our hands quite so much. But I think this is a trend that we've seen around the world, at least in Europe. Two years ago at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, the Committee on Animals and Research hosted a forum on exactly the topic of transparency, where we had a colleague of mine, uh, Stefan Troja from Germany, who's the head of one of their primate research institutes there. And they've really, he's really been a pioneer in opening up their facility to have regular public tours. There's a group in England who's doing the same thing, and that's been part of our mission at the Society for Neuroscience as well. And what we think it's important from a number of perspectives, it's important for ordinary people to see that scientists are also ordinary people. We have, you know, wives and children, and we have dogs for pets, and we, you know, live in your neighborhood. We believe that what we're doing is important and justified and humane. And so I think it's important to have that dialogue. And of course, as I was saying earlier, most of the work that I and others like me do is funded by tax dollars, by the National Institutes of Health, which is where most of my grant money comes from. And so it needs to be a discussion. We're doing this with the support of and under the auspices of the American people. And so it needs to be a, a dialogue, a, a greater discussion between many stakeholders, including animal rights activists, I think. But it needs to be informed, I think, by real scientific reality, for lack of a better word. I think that's where scientists come in. As my role as a scientist, I can tell people what I do, why I do it, and what I think would go away if we as a field stopped doing experiments with animals. As a parent, I also come in with wanting to have vaccines and surgical approaches and devices and drugs and treatments for, you know, my daughter and for the dogs that I, that I own as pets. So I come at it from, you know, wearing two different hats as both a, you know, a citizen and as a researcher. I can fully relate to your comment about wanting medical advancements for your children because I'm a new mother and my son has been through a couple of things and I am so grateful for the children's hospital and the research and the procedures that, you know, have provided him with relief. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, this technology and all of this exists, you know. So I think that sort of segues nicely. I was hoping we could discuss some specific examples on how this type of research has benefited society as a whole, you know, for humans and for our pets as well. Absolutely. I'm always interested. This always comes up in the many discussions I have on this topic. You know, we all have our favorite examples, and I'll give you some of mine in a second. But I think the shorter list would be what medical treatments and devices and interventions have not involved animal research. Well, I would say that's a list that's almost zero. And in fact, it's not just, you know, because by law, right, any new drug, any new device, like a new pacemaker or a deep brain stimulation device, or any new surgical approach has to be tested on 
um, at least two different animal species before it can even be applied to humans. And so everything that your doctor gives you, every medication, except maybe some very, very old ones like aspirin, for example, which has been around since time immemorial, right? But virtually everything in your medicine cabinet, including most of what you buy over the counter at your CVS or whatever drugstore you use, has been developed thanks to basic research that's sort of taught us about the druggable pathways that led to the development of the drugs, as well as the testing for safety and efficacy that is done on animals. The other thing that most people don't realize is that probably, I actually don't know what the right figure would be. It'd be interesting to, to do a random study sometime. But of all the things that your physician learned in medical school or for your veterinarian learned in veterinary school, probably 75% of those facts were gained from research that was done on animals. And so it's just, it permeates all of human and veterinary medicine. So it's not just a matter of saying, oh, it, you know, we used it to develop a vaccine for polio or we used it to develop modern anesthetics. It's pretty much everything you can think of. Yeah. And that's a good point because I'm, as our listeners know, and as you know, I'm in my second year of veterinary school and things are always changing as our professors told us when they learned in school, they didn't know, but now through research, now they're able to tell us different mechanisms and how different things work in these different animal model and different animal species. And there's actually some legislation out there, which we don't need to dig into too much that in the state of Virginia, we won't be able to buy research bred dogs which they think is just going to impact organizations doing research, but it's also going to impact our school as we won't be able to purchase cadaver dogs and we won't be able to, we have a colony of beagles, if you will, that we take care of as first years and do our spay neuters and adopt them out to the community. And we won't be able to do any of that if that were to go through. So I don't think they always realize the impact of some of the legislation that goes forward as well. Absolutely. It's kind of the law of unintended consequences. But yeah, the fact that I have a great anecdote about this. It was told to me by our dean of medical education that back, uh, this was quite some time ago, I think in the 70s, there was um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, as you probably know, is a very progressive uh, liberal city. And that's where at both MIT and, and Harvard University um, are located. And there was a, a movement afoot back in the 70s to make Cambridge a research animal-free zone. So they would completely abolish any research involving animals. And as the story was told to me by uh, Dr. Hundert, they got the, uh, someone from either Harvard or MIT, got the cardiac surgeon who had done the neighbor, uh, the mayor's bypass, cardiac uh, bypass surgery, to visit the mayor and tell him that he had actually perfected his skills you know, to do this, the surgery, the bypass graft surgery, which is not a trivial procedure um, on pigs and dogs. And would the mayor have liked him to be the first person he had tried this surgical procedure on? And I think the, um, as the story goes, the resolution was pretty swiftly killed. But it, again, it just goes to show how deep and necessary animal research is to the entire biomedical enterprise and not limited to humans, but including our, uh, the benefits that go to our pets as well. Right. Yeah. Speaking of retrospective studies, that'd be another interesting one to go back and look at all the research and data that's come out of that area since that time. And if there was an animal free zone and no research was able to be done, how much we'd be missing out on as a society since then, Cambridge and that whole area, MIT and Harvard hadn't been using animals and tons of discoveries. Or what would even become of those institutions because they wouldn't be able to recruit as many faculty as they have, you know? Absolutely. So let's move into a little bit about some of your research. Um, 
Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what you do and how animals are involved in your research and the different animal models that you use? And maybe one day how that can be providing even more technology and more advances to medicine for ourselves and our pets? Certainly. So my basic interest is in the visual system, basically how it is that we manage to see. And it seems when you tell this to the person on the elevator, they say, well, that's obvious. It's very simple. Um, but of course, it's not. It's extremely complicated. And even the best computers now running the best software can't see anywhere nearly as well as a two-year-old child can. So what we do is we're kind of trying to reverse engineer the visual system uh, using non-human primates, namely the rhesus macaque monkey as our primary model organism. And the reason we use them is because their visual systems, as far as we can test them, and we've tested them behaviorally in many, many different ways now over the years, they're very similar to the human visual system, and they have a brain that's very similar to the human brain. And so uh, what we do is we typically train them on uh, some sort of visual task, like I might sit you down in front of a computer screen and ask you uh, the direction of motion of some complex visual motion stimulus. Um, and sometimes it would might be moving to the right or to the left. And you would be able to tell me, well, we can train a monkey to report the same thing by either pressing a lever or making an eye movement to a target to report its decision. And then what we can do is go in and interrogate the neural circuits in the monkey's brain while the monkey is performing the task. And we can do this in a very pain-free way because the brain itself has no pain receptors. So we can insert tiny uh, hair-thin microelectrodes into the cerebral cortex and record from the neurons that are actually doing the computations that are endowing the animal with the ability to see. So at the most basic level, the knowledge that has come from experiments in my lab and other labs like it, probably the most tangible thing in people's lives involves machine vision. So everything, you know, all the software that recognizes you when you're on Facebook, when you post a, a picture to Facebook and it says, would you like to tag Jeff Marshall? It recognizes you because it's using algorithms that were directly patterned after the, what we've learned about vision in the, in the macaque monkey visual system. So machine vision is a huge sort of thing. It doesn't necessarily right now have direct benefits to human health. You could dispute whether the Facebook's ability to recognize pictures is a, a good thing or a bad thing, but it certainly is something that's being developed and is continuing to be developed and is directly informed by research on the visual systems of monkeys. At a more applied level, um, you've probably heard of neuroprosthetics, which are basically devices which would can substitute for various sensory inputs. So, for example, someone who has a neurodegenerative blindness, uh, for example, their photoreceptors degenerate, um, which is a very common form of acquired blindness in humans. There are now prosthetics that essentially aim to use a camera and then computer processing to sort of substitute for the early stages of the visual system, the, the calculations that happen in the retina and the early levels of the cortex, perhaps, and then insert those signals into a part of the visual system that's intact still. And that would be the sort of a visual prosthetic. Wow. This is going to sound like the worst pun ever, but this, Blows is, my mind. this is really eye-opening and I don't even <laughs> want it to sound super cheesy, but I'm over here making this facial expression like very impressed. <laughs> yeah, sounds very technical and, and complex. Neuroprosthetics, actually, I'm not very familiar with them. It's extremely complex, but you've probably seen, for example, um, at the other end, um, you've probably seen videotapes, for example, of a paralyzed human being who 
thanks to an electrode array that was implanted in her motor cortex, was able to use that with signals from her brain that were then decoded by a computer and used to control a robot arm, um, able to, for the first time, you know, under her own will, if you will, to grasp her coffee cup and bring it to her mouth. So these are things that are being actively worked on um, that are fall under the category of brain-machine interfaces or brain-computer interfaces that are being developed for patients who uh, lose the ability to move their limbs due to a spinal cord lesion or to something like uh, Lou Gehrig's disease, things like that. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for breaking that down. I had never heard of a lot of that. That is fascinating. I know my head is spinning now. That's really incredible. I forgot where I was going now. And that stuff sounds a little bit sci-fi, but it's actually, you know, being done in human patients now. And it all was done first in monkeys uh, before it was ever done in humans. But there's obviously some more, maybe let's say pedestrian or less space agey, you know, uses, especially of, let's say, monkeys. So, for example, there are a lot of diseases that are a scourge to humanity, um, for which monkeys are the only non-human model. I mean, a good example recently maybe was the Zika virus. You can't really study that and its means of transmission across the placenta to the baby. You can't really study that in a mouse. The, the monkey proved to be a really important model for the development of vaccines for Zika virus. And it's true for many other things. It was true for the polio vaccine. It's true for the development of deep brain stimulation for patients with Parkinson's disease, which is now being used even for people with depression. And so there are many things where having a brain that's close in size to the human brain or having an immune system that is a good model of the human's immune system for various communicable diseases where monkeys are sort of the only game in town. Um, which is not to say that there isn't a huge amount of really important work that's done on rodent models. There's been a huge, a vast number of discoveries that have been made on model organisms like C. elegans, which is a, a tiny, tiny worm that lives in the dirt, or Drosophila, which is the common house fruit fly. All of these organisms, partly because of how conserved various signaling pathways are and the genetic, the, the basis of the proteins in our bodies are so highly conserved across evolution that a lot can be learned on simpler animals or let's say animals that are more remote from us in the evolutionary tree. But then there are things for which uh, non-human primates are essential. And so I think one of the principles in the field, and certainly it's a principle of the National Institutes of Health, is that you know, any time money is given to an investigator, and the investigator has to justify the use of the particular species. Why do I need to use a monkey? Why can't I use a less valuable organism like a mouse? And so that has to be justified top to bottom as well as in the, the animal experimentation protocols that we all have to have approved before we can do any experiments that involve animals. Yeah, I couldn't have said that any better. We've broken down the three R's and the iCook protocol approval process and all of that. And you basically just answered my next question for you too, just to talk about the different animal models used in research and why you'd use one over the other. And we could spend a whole episode on that. Moving on from that then, since you already answered that so perfectly, back to the Society for Neurosciences website, and you had mentioned the different committees that you guys have and the one for the animal activists for people that have been maybe organizations or institutions that are facing opposition from animal rights groups. I saw on the website, there is a section for members and they could, there's resources for them. So I just think it's pertinent for our listeners to hear a little bit about some of the various levels of extremism out there 
And I know you've already described it a little bit about the razor blades you received in the mail. And I mean, there's totally extreme level where, I mean, I've read about researchers house being burned down to the minor things where, you know, they just want to call you and harass you. So is it really prevalent? Do you think it's still prevalent even after that legislation was passed in 2006, you said? Do you guys see a lot of people reaching out and using those resources on your website? Is it still common? So my sense is that it's less prevalent recently than it has been than it was, say, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. Um, but it still happens. And you probably have, are aware of some of these things. There was a young uh, woman who's a postdoc at Yale doing research on um, bird models who was singled out. It appears to be kind of random, but the fact that it happens at all is, I think, unacceptable. As I said, I, I think this is a discussion that needs to be had. And I tell every single person um, who I have this sort of discussion with and every single person who comes to work in my lab that I don't think that any of us have a, a God-given or any in other intrinsic right to do these experiments. They have to be justified in terms of the benefits that are gained versus the harm that is done to the animals. And this is justified, again, internally in our IACUC, our animal experimentation protocols. And it's justified at the level, obviously, to our represented, uh, our elected representatives in Washington who pass laws. And, you know, if someone came along and said tomorrow, you know, Rick, Congress decided that, you know, your research doesn't justify um, the use of animals, I would accept that and find something else to do. But I think that the debate, the discussion needs to be informed by a real consideration of what would be lost if that were to be the case. And it's also important, I think, for people like me to inform the public as to you know, what we do, why we do it, how we do it, and all of the steps that we take to ensure that any um, harm to the animals is absolutely minimized. And that includes things like, you know, the standard of care is the same as would be for a human. When we do surgery, we use the same anesthetics, the same opiate analgesics that would be used for a human undergoing a similar surgical procedure. I was going to say, you still scrub in, you still prepare the patient the same, you still do everything just like you would human. Absolutely. It's an approved sterile surgery. And, you know, that's the one area where my medical training, I think, yeah, has, I has helped in my basic research is that I, you know, learned that sort of thing in medical school. But yes, the standards are very high. The oversight is very high. Our animals are seen every single day by the vet staff and we meet with them on a regular basis to discuss issues that come up. So it's very much a team approach. And the, the goal is to do responsible research and to you know, ensure the well-being of the animals insofar as it's consistent with responsible research. It doesn't really sound like there's much more, I guess what I'm trying to say is it sounds like there's so much good information out there and resources to offer transparency, you know, moving forward. Is there anything else that you feel, you know, researchers could do, uh, people who are kind of behind the scenes, even the animal caretakers could do to just kind of continue to improve the trust that the public has for animal research? Yeah, I, I think there is more. And I think um, just as the example I gave earlier about my colleague, Stefan Troya in Germany, um, where they host public tours of their animal facilities. You know, that's something where people get a little bit squeamish about that sort of thing. But a former colleague of mine who was the, the head vet at the uh, Harvard College campus, Steve Nimi, proposed exactly that at a meeting of the National Academy of Sciences that I participated in. It was a sort of, let's show them how the sausage is made. And really, you know, we don't have anything to hide. We want people to know 
they, and they deserve to know what's done in their name. Now, I think where things sometimes get a little tricky is that I, I know that if you took an average person into a human operating room uh, or a veterinary operating room, they would find it a little hard to stomach because there's blood and there's stuff that people who aren't you know, used to seeing it. I remember the first time I walked into a, a surgery room, I had to sit down for a few minutes. I got lightheaded. And of course, as a medical professional, I know that the patient on the table is completely anesthetized and in addition has opiates on board and has had their surgical incisions blocked with a local anesthetic so that they're not experiencing any pain whatsoever, but it's still, one has a visceral emotional response to that sort of thing. So, you know, it, it requires a certain amount of education to understand how things are being done and, and that they're being done responsibly and humanely. Yeah. And then anyone that's interested too, and I don't know, Dr. Warren, if you've seen it on the, the Americans for Medical Progress have a website called Come See Our World and they show videos and pictures of laboratory animals actually in their enclosures and in the laboratories and being well cared for kind of to counteract some of the you know negative pictures that are out there that show them in the opposite that the animal activist groups have put out there. So it's called Come See Our World. I'll put it in our show notes for people to go see it. Yep. I've seen those videos and I think they're a good thing. Having people actually come in touring the facilities and being able to ask questions to the people who are there, um, you know, who are running the facilities, who are taking care of the animals is potentially a good thing. I mean, it has to be done in a careful way. But again, you know, we're, what we do is done largely with public funding and largely with the sanction of the American public. So people deserve to know. And um, they also deserve to know, though, what the consequences are for not doing it. Right. Like I said, and like you've said, it's just the more transparent we are, the more open we are. I think the more trust we'll get from the public. If you're trying to be secretive, it looks like you're trying to hide something. So show them what we do. And I think if we have their full support, then it just also counteracts a lot of the activist side of it as well. But like you said, we just need their support for continued funding and everything else. So one thing we've been doing on the show towards the end here is just kind of asking our guests to describe what they say to people when asked what they do for a living. Like if you're on an airplane, you got a social gathering, a party, do you bring up the animal research component? It sounds like you probably do based upon what you've said. And if they have reactions and if their reaction changes, you know, like if you tell them initially and their, their jaw drops and then afterwards you explained it and they're like, oh, wow, it's really not what I thought it was. It's funny. It's not the first thing I say. I generally say I'm interested in studying the visual system and the neural circuits that endow us with the ability to see. And, and often that leads to a, a discussion that has more to do with the, let's say, psychological aspects of vision. Um, you know, like, oh, I, my husband's colorblind. And then we talk about color vision and that sort of thing. But I certainly don't avoid the topic. But I, I don't always go out of my way. And this is something, actually, it's interesting you brought this up because I think it was three meetings ago of the meetings of the Society for Neuroscience, the event that our Committee on Animals and Research sponsored was exactly this. It was practicing your elevator talk and actually working in that you used animals as well. So we did a number of things. We had breakout groups where uh, we had tables. And I was amazed at the number of young investigators, you know, researchers who were at the graduate student level or the postdoctoral fellow level were at this event. And we practiced our elevator pitches on each other with the intent, express intent of letting people know that, yes, we did, our work did require the, the humane, responsible use of animals. So it's something that I've been working on doing more of. There are a lot of people who are uncomfortable with it and they'll kind of naturally change the subject. Uh, I've never had anyone get huffy and say, oh, you're a monster. 
But I'm sure some people have maybe thought that, but it's hard to know. I think that's one thing that as a society, we've been uh, actively working towards helping because it, it's one of those things. It's like, it's like anything. If you practice it and you get used to doing it, uh, the more you do it, the more you realize that it's not such a big deal. And the more people in the general public, I think, get to know about it, the more they're likely to support what we do. There has been a general trend towards the public not thinking that biomedical research is, is involving animals is okay. There's a, a poll every year and then the percentage that's been going down. The last I saw it was something like 52% of the general public supports biomedical research involving animals. And that's a little frightening from where I sit. Right. For all of us, really. I mean, even the people that don't realize it's frightening, it's frightening. Absolutely. And I think it, it goes all the way towards, as we were, as Danielle mentioned earlier, the vaccines that uh, were used to vaccinate her child and the treatments that are given when the child is sick. Those things all depended on and continue to depend on research involving animals. Yeah. Like I said, that it just completely makes me grateful that I'm even involved in this field to kind of know what goes on behind the scenes to know what's the final product that my kid can benefit from. So I think this has been an amazing discussion with you. This episode, I think, is going to be a great one for our listeners. Are there any final sort of things you want to say to everybody about anything we maybe didn't touch on before we wrap this up with some housekeeping details? Uh, sure. I mean, I think we've touched on most of the things, but I'd like to at least uh, reiterate a couple of things that I think aren't commonly understood. You know, one is, and I know your podcast has been addressing this, not just today, but in, in the previous episodes, how intensely regulated and how well looked after the animals are. I think that's something that's important for the public to know. One thing that I think that hasn't come up, but I think is important, most of my colleagues, uh, myself included, are animal lovers. There's never been a time in my life, uh, except for during college, when I haven't owned a dog. <laughs> and so, you know, they're important parts of my life. And I realize the importance of research in making their lives better as well. I guess that was the, my last point was the benefits, you know, for our pets. Yeah. But yeah, we've touched on that a little bit. I mean, because I think everybody in this field has at least one pet. I mean, I've always had a dog. Danielle has dogs and I don't know what else and chickens. you have and what else you're going to get. I got some get. chickens now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, everybody that's come on, I mean, they all have pets and they all have benefited in some way, manual research, not just for themselves, but for their pets as well. And that's points we've been trying to drive home repeatedly because it really touches home with everybody. So if we don't have anything else, again, Dr. Boren, this episode's been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on and talking with us today. It was a pleasure chatting with you. And just the final housekeeping topics here. We are still doing the $100 Amazon gift card giveaways. We have five of them to give away. The winners will be selected through the comments. So you leave comments, you rate, review the show. We'll select the winners of that. We will announce them on the show and through our social media, which our Twitter following is at the Librat chat. And if you just want to email us directly, it's libratchat at gmail.com. So again, thanks to Dr. Bourne. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you, Danielle. Yep. <laughs> and we will talk to everybody on the next episode of Librat Chat. Bye everyone. 